you hear about all the Atlanta food stuff going oh, on? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I follow Keith Lee. My TikTok was full of the 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 Atlanta food drama uh this past entire week. Um for those who don't know Keith Lee is a I don't, I don't, food critic is, is a, a food TikTok yeah. critic, maybe is the way to put he it. Gets, he gets takeout and he reviews, he it, in his, he reviews yeah. it in his car and he's, he's used it as a, I'd like to say like, as a force for good. He likes to yes. highlight uh, black owned businesses and he always leaves like a big tip and he likes to go to like, you know, smaller play. He'll, he'll go to like, if he's, if he's in a town, he'll go to like the kind of hype place, but he'll yeah. also, he also likes to go to places that are kind of like struggling. Um, yeah. It's not even like it's not even like black owned businesses, but yeah, it's it's business that he's heard about. He's in the Vegas areas where he's from. He's also mm-hmm. an MMA fighter, which is the funny like side thing mm-hmm. about him. But yeah, he he in Vegas he kind of started off like he would go because he has a little bit of following because the the fighting, uh, and he would he would basically say, oh, this place is great. It was like usually like food trucks that didn't have a lot of people showing up, and he he changed a lot of like the course of like businesses. Uh, in Vegas, like, like you said, small town or locally owned restaurants that had great food, but just didn't have like a good marketing campaign or, or following. And then recently in Atlanta, he's been doing like a tour around the country to kind of showcase these spots. And there was some drama in Atlanta where he was not able to be sat at one point. And then when they found out that it was him. They well, like nobody to, was doing takeout. No one was doing takeout. It was like he went to his, his basically he'll send people in because he's gotten so big people will recognize him and he's very much like i don't want to be like given special treatment i want to be treated treat like a regular customer and this one restaurant or uh, certain restaurants basically like when he come in and basically hey like uh can you just give us takeout or like oh no we, we don't do takeout blah, blah, blah. and then like when they find out it's him they're like oh well we'll we'll sit you we'll sit you down immediately he's like no i don't i want to be truly like a regular person i'm gonna leave and some people kind of responded because they were pissed that he basically called them out <laughs> <laughs> for, for kind of some of the rules and then it's it's been a hotbed of just drama in atlanta uh foods uh, uh restaurants right now because mm-hmm. of it so much backlash everywhere um yeah i've had several people reach out and be like have you ever been to any of these spots and they <laughs> a lot of those places are big in the so there's a brunch scene in atlanta yes yes and when you hear like brunch scene you might be like oh yeah i go get some like french toast but it's it's like you you go to these places at like 11 a.m. and you eat like a huge meal and you start drinking and then you just stay For- and then it turns into like a club at like six. Yeah. And this is all on like a Sunday. Yeah. And so like if you go in like Midtown Atlanta, you drive around Midtown Atlanta at like six o'clock on a Sunday, like you would you would think it's like a Saturday night. Uh, yeah, yeah. And and that is just that's not that's not what my Sundays are for. <laughs> <laughs> Your Sundays are usually for recording the podcast. Is what it is mm-hmm. So those, a lot of those places do have like you go in and they have these like rules on the wall. And and yeah. if you thought you were going to like a restaurant for like a, a Sunday brunch, I can understand why you'd be confused because it will turn it like what they're dealing with is at some point it will turn into a club. Like, yeah. And um, it was that way when I was in college, there were a lot of like restaurants in Charleston because like Charleston is such a bar scene. Yeah. Um, like the places that were like sit down restaurants, like you have this, there was a place called tasty tie mm-hmm. and um, it was just like, everyone knew that like nine o'clock, they just pushed all the tables to the wall and tasty tie was a dance club. Like, and, <laughs> and it would just be like a very quiet 
Thai restaurant. But it'd be so funny, like if you were like there early for for to start drinking, like there'd just be some random tourists like sitting having pad thai <laughs> and they're just looking around like what is going on right now? It's about to be a club. Um yeah, so I, I yeah, I now have a list of places I want to try to attend to when I <laughs> come to Atlanta whenever I come there in the next few months. But yeah, so enough about I guess all that. Uh, oh, oh, also big or uh, we've I've been kind of putting at the beginning of the show these past few weeks, but it's the week of of our screening of Children of Minute New Art Theater. Um, mm-hmm. So if you're listening to the first two days of release, uh, be sure to be at our screening of Children of Men uh, Friday, November tenth uh, at ten thirty p.m. Tickets are five dollars. It's I'm excited to see this in the big screen. Everyone I talked to was like, I've never seen it on the big screen. I was like, well, not many people did if you listen mm-hmm. to our episode because it didn't do too well uh, at the U.S. box office. So I know a lot of people are excited to to, to come to it. Um, it's gonna be a fun time. Uh, we have uh, some prizes to give away and just to kind of let's come enjoy a, a great film. Also, uh, let's honor Michael Caine because he just retired. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 a big one. Um, so yeah, but that's coming up. But let's go back into what we're doing this month, Thomas. And before we do that, my name is Brand Sparks. I'm Thomas Horton. And this is Nation Podcast. And this month we are discussing the private investigator genre. It's it's noir vember. We're talking about noir films or noir like films and neo noir films. And we're looking at the investigator as kind of the the theme for this month. And we did the Thin Man last week. And I think this genre is going to be very interesting to discuss this entire entire month uh, because it's somewhat different, but there there are interesting kind of threads that run throughout. So what do we talk mm-hmm. about last week, Thomas? Um, we talked about the kind of the private investigator genre kind of ha- having its origins with um, Edgar Allan Poe uh, mm-hmm. very quickly uh, with Dupin, um, but then how it kind of has this also this offshoot of like kind of cozy mystery with um with the thin man and we we discuss some of the kind of other cozy genres that have come up from it um but of course then you've yeah. got agatha christie kind of spawning off of that um and sherlock holmes but yeah. um the idea of kind of each each movie having the detective kind of as a constant and having each yeah. movie kind of be like based around the different case or if it's a TV show or a novel series, mm-hmm. um, which is how we talked about how the thin man kind of set up, you know, we're with these two characters for the first 10 minutes and then we get Nick like after that. So it, it, yeah. it seems to be setting up for their story. And then we're like, no, actually this is his case. <clears throat> we also yeah. talked about how important it is in, in those types of, uh, private investigator movies uh how important the private investigator is how important his personality is and uh specifically in the thin man movies how the case kind of comes separate uh or comes second to uh to just kind of enjoying the, the investigator yeah. have a good time investigating um and yeah so we're gonna get a very different one today i'm i'm gonna say a lot of the rules we established last week i feel like are not going to apply here well i think but i think it's a good thing to discuss because it shows kind of the we wanted to i wanted to the thin man last week because it definitely establishes the genre in its infancy in terms of mm-hmm. film like you said it's very much like it's just a story after story after story you're really invested in the character don't really care about the plot it's about interesting kind of people to watch 
So you have that. It all kind of pivots, I think, later when you get things like Philip Marlowe is mm-hmm. a thing uh, on the big screen with Murder, My Sweet. Philip Marlowe and Sam Spade uh, and yeah. specifically Bogart uh, as Sam Spade in the Maltese Falcon. And you get this kind of thing where it is a re- it is a reoccurring character. It is a different case, but with a lot of these cases in those movies, it becomes where the personal life gets intertwined with the professional life of an investigator mm-hmm. with the thin man. And those, like we talked about the other ones that, that pal did before the kennel murder case or those type uh, ones. And like the Sherlock Holmes stuff, that's just very much just a, a really interesting character solving cases with mm-hmm. Maltese Falcon. And those, it was that this idea of romance gets into play because a lot of this with, with noir, there is this kind of idea of a tragic romance or a, uh, unobtainable romance in some way, and mm. with those, um, it, it becomes like I said, the, the 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 case becomes the personal life. And in turn, yeah. a lot of the times, obsession becomes a part of that. Is the thing, mm-hmm. and with today's movie, which is Vertigo, I, I have a feeling upset. I mean, as as we watch the movie, both obsession plays a very key part in this film. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, something else I thought about that has become kind of a trope of this genre in particular, and, and it's something that's unique to the private investigator genre, because you obviously are not really getting it in the in the police detective genre, is I was just thinking about it today, and I was like, so many of these, it, it's, it's kind of old hat at this point. I mean, we're looking back at a lot of movies that were like kind of the first to do it, or the first yeah. dozen to do it, but the the person who hired you ending up being someone involved yeah. spoiler alert spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah spoiler alerts yeah, yeah yeah spoiler alerts for vertigo for sure but i mean a lot of those sam spade ones a lot of those philip marlowe ones even all the way up to mm. knives out i mean that's that's part yeah. of knives out is is ultimately the, the question the whole time is who hired me um so yeah that's that's what i was thinking of i was like yeah. at this point you, you the first thing you should do if you're in one of these is just be like all right well it's probably the guy that hired me <laughs> yeah because usually what happens with that is that you have the person who hires them and this even in a weird way just spoiler on this movie kind of happens in a haunting in venice with kenneth Branagh's perot mm-hmm. um just to, to to a little bit of that is that there's kind of um basically someone that hired there is like there's the, the person that hired you I want to say it's involved, but it has ulterior motive mm-hmm. uh, of why they're doing it. And in some cases, it's because the person doing the hiring knows the 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 thoughts and the weaknesses of the person that's doing the investigation, and they can somehow exploit that mm-hmm. to their advantage. And that that occurs throughout the entire genre in some way. I mean, yeah. I I don't know why I think of this, but. A movie that I think of in terms of like a hiring that ends up being the villain is a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which was Sean Connor. I don't know mm-hmm, why, mm-hmm. but like that—that's what happens is that like he hires him for this specific reason, and then you find out, oh wait, it was him all along that was doing mm-hmm. it, and and it's like in some cases they could be the patsy in a way, and why are being hired, or they could just be a good alibi for some. It's all these different things of why are being hired. Um, you know, with Vertigo today, I think that's a, it's it's probably the one of the bigger examples. Yeah of it is the thing yeah for sure all right well vertigo for those who are unaware mm-hmm. uh we've already started on the spoilers so maybe time to stop and go watch that um 
but it's a 1958 film about a private investigator who is hired to tell the wife of an old friend and he begins finding himself falling in love with her to the point of obsession mm-hmm. uh the cast intro you've got jimmy stewart the goat uh yep. kim novak and barbara Belgetti's. it is directed by alfred hitchcock written by samuel a taylor and alec koppel with title design by saul bass mm-hmm. costumes by edith head a score by bernard herman and filmed by Robert Burks, who we will discuss all of those people as yeah. we get into uh, Alfred Hitchcock and his methods. Yeah. Um, another shout out real quick is George Tomasini, who's the editor, who edited like most mm. of Hitchcock's yeah. Rear, Rear Window, North and Northwest, Psycho. We've talked about him because we've, we've this is our third Hitchcock film we've done. And I think Tomasini I've talked about briefly mm-hmm. on the previous two episodes. So shout, yeah. shout out him. So what are, Brandon, what are your initial Vertigo thoughts? Well, well, my, my history with Vertigo real quick, mm-hmm. uh, it's such a, I don't, I don't know how I should feel about this piece of information I'm about the reveal. Um, if it's, if it's impressive or sad. Uh, so this was the thousandth movie I bought. Wow. Was, was okay. Vertigo. I don't know how I kept track you, of that. Yeah. That was before so, Letterboxd too. So I, so I used to back in the day, I, I had a, a word document. That had all the movies I had bought and I had bought this in college was the thing. So by college, I already had a thousand movies. Um, and I remember my, bu- our, our buddy Mark, cause we were working. He was like, he knew I was getting close. Like what's the thousandth movie going to be? And I bought this on DVD as the thousandth film. And I've watched it several times since then. And it's one that, has grown on me more and more each time. And I think we will, we will discuss in terms of the aftermath of this film um, of, of kind of the reception of it is that I think the first time you watch it, it's like, it's just so different really for Hitchcock is the thing. I, I kind of describe it as like, it's Hitchcock as an artist, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Like it's the most yeah, artful. We'll, we'll definitely talk about that. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's the most artful Hitchcock really ever was is the thing. Mm-hmm. And, so there is a lot to kind of digest and analyze and, and and kind of look into and he's doing so much in this. And I'd also, I also argue it's probably his most personal film and we'll discuss that more as we go mm-hmm. on. Um, but yeah, I've watched it several times since I, you and I saw it together, I think at the new yeah. art as well. Yeah. And four, 4k at the new art. Yeah. Yeah. But was and, it when they were leading up to the release of Hitchcock Truffaut? The, it was the Hitchcock Truffaut. They were doing a, yeah. a documentary and we both went to see it. Um, and then I also did a screening of it at the new art later on, um, for a midnight when I was working at the video store, Cinephile Video, we, we did some co-presentations of my last one I did there. Uh, and it, it turned a good crowd and like, it's, mm. it, it, it's one that I think constantly, it's an interesting one. It's like, it's, it's a lot of people's either favorite Hitchcock or they don't like it at all is what, I, what I've come, come to find <laughs> we'll out. We'll talk about that as well. <laughs> So, yeah, so that's my history. Um, again, every time I come back to it, there's something I, I try to look at differently and analyze, uh, and we'll discuss that this time. But what's your kind of history? What are your thoughts on it coming into this? Yeah, so this is one I've mentioned before. Back when, back in the Blockbuster mail days, we, my family, like when I was in like high school, we were going down like the AFI list, and yeah. we're just watching everything. And so that that was definitely the first time I saw it. And and yeah, I think you know when you're younger, and especially the first time that you see it, you are taken by the kind of mystery and the twist of it and everything. And and it feels a little bit more straightforward, I think, because you are kind of following the mystery. And and uh, 
and it also takes you by surprise because it's Jimmy Stewart. And so, um, you know, I came back to it in college. I took a class about uh, kind of sexual psychology and, and Hitchcock. Um, so we came back to this one through a much different lens. Yeah. And that's when I was like, oh, my God, this is about this, which we, we yes, will be discussing. Yes, um, yes. And it's just a completely different experience. And and yeah, every time I've watched it now, you just get deeper and deeper into that kind of obsession and this kind of dark romance, tragic, like the fall of a complete loss of a man into obsession story. Yep. But it's like, wow, I can't believe like the first time I watched this, I just took it at face value as a murder mystery. Um, yep. So it, it, I, I think it's definitely one of like his richest texts. And that's coming from someone who has seen psycho like at least 20 times and written multiple papers on all the imagery and hidden yeah. theming within psycho but um but yeah I, I think it's him kind of at his most abstract and we'll we'll talk uh we'll definitely talk later about if, if anyone here is uh we'll, we're gonna go into all the history of kind of hitchcock and his career and we'll talk about the yeah. here do cinema but um we'll definitely talk about why this one kind of really brought the french around on him so um yeah yeah, you ready to get into it? I'm ready to get into Vertigo. All right, we we, we like to we like to start at, at base one for everybody. So um so let's let's do a little bit of Alfred Hitchcock. Okay. Uh, backstory. So, Alfred Hitchcock was born Alfred Joseph Hitchcock in Essex in 1899. He had a fairly normal childhood, apart from one experience that he liked to tell often in interviews. Uh, that at the age of five, he got into a, an argument with his father and his dad handed young five-year-old Alfred a note and said, take this to the police station and hand it to the officer. <laughs> and he took it to, so he did as he was told, mm-hmm. he handed the note to the policeman uh, and they opened it up and they found a note from his father that said, this boy has been very naughty today. Please lock him up to teach him a lesson. So they took five-year-old Alfred back to a cell and said, this is what we do to naughty boys and locked him up for a minute. <laughs> and uh, But it was a traumatic enough experience to give him a lifelong phobia of police yep. uh, to the point where he never learned to drive a car because he figured he'd never be at risk of being pulled over and given a traffic citation. I never knew that. If he never knew how to drive a car, yeah. Wow. Yeah, Spielberg just told this story recently on the TCM thing where he was he was picking like movies for the tcm like uh programming and he picked the wrong man with henry fonda mm. he, he brought that same exact story of like i always think of that shot that uh, and, and i feel like cameron cameron's never cited it but i feel like he definitely references it in in t2 but you know when she's sleeping in the car in psycho and that cop he never takes his glasses off he's just got oh, those yeah, big yeah, yeah. dark glasses and just like leans down into frame and it's so it's terrifying have you seen this boy um so hitchcock went to engineering school uh and he was in engineering school when his father passed away at 52 and so he had to drop out of school to get a job as a clerk to support his family he continued taking art and writing classes at night and eventually got a job as a copywriter and short story author for a magazine he then got a job as a title card writer for one of london's very first film studios and worked his way up in that studio system to being an assistant director. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this point, he was just kind of a studio contract man. He would cover whatever jobs were needed from writing scripts to doing set design. Uh, it was at this point when he worked on a movie with uh, his future wife, um, Alma Revel, uh, although he 
could never get the courage to speak to her for the two years they worked together at that studio. Um, I get that. She was a script supervisor at the time. Okay. Uh, in 1925, he uh, got a call to direct his first silent feature as part of a partnership between mm. the, st- the studio that he worked for, Gainsborough Pictures, and the Geisel Gostig studio in Munich. Okay. I think I, I nailed remember. that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he went to, went to Munich, uh, kind of got sent to Munich by his studio that he worked for and made three films in Munich under that partnership. Mm. And um, as he got sent to Munich was when he called up Alma and said, do you want to come be my editor? That was the first conversation they oh, ever wow. actually had was he invited her to come to Munich and edit his films for him. <laughs> um, That's funny. You never talk to each guy. Hey, you're my editor. Hey, Just do you know him. me? We were you know together me? for two years. I'm the, uh, I'm the little pudgy boy uh, <laughs> who never talked to you and so scared to talk to you. Will you edit my movie? Uh, so he did three films while he was in Munich. Uh, one of them is lost completely. Yeah. One of them he says is not very good, so nobody's bothered to check it out. And then, and then one is is around. You can see it. Yeah. Um, but he credits a lot of his development as a filmmaker to coming up under that German style, which will be, you know, we talked uh, about that last with film noir. Yeah. Uh, very influential style on film noir is German expressionism. Yeah. Um, Upon returning to London, Hitchcock made his first hit, which was The Lodger, A Story of the London Fog, which is a uh, silent film about a man falsely accused. Look at that. What do you know? And and it's it's in 27, right? Yeah. 27? Yeah. 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 Kind of a a Jack the Ripper, mass hysteria kind of movie. Um, But yeah, Yeah. man falsely accused would become a very common subject in his films. They They would remake it a few years later, I think in the 40s uh with laird Krager is like Krager as like the the villain jack the ripper type character mm-hmm. he played a lot of heavy roles at that point so from the commercial and critical success of the lodger hitchcock became really one of the most successful directors in england he focused mainly on thrillers and espionage films mm-hmm. he began collaborating with alma they they got married it's it, during this uh time and started writing scripts together Mm -hmm. um he made films including blackmail which was the first british talkie uh sabotage the Mm -hmm. 39 steps the man who knew too much the first version and the lady vanishes and just about the time hitchcock felt he was beginning to outgrow the limitations of the london film scene producer american producer david oselznick approached him with an offer to come to america uh, Hitchcock had gotten other offers to come to America, but he always said the movie didn't feel right. But Selznick approached him with a movie that Hitchcock had been very interested in mm-hmm. a film about the sinking of the Titanic. Oh, so that is what got Hitchcock to agree to come to America. But at some point in the process of him moving to America, the Titanic movie sank. Sank. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but he did make the move to America and his first American studio film with Selznick um, mm-hmm. would ironically be a film set in England based on a novel by a British <laughs> author uh, with 1940s Rebecca. Yeah. Um, Rebecca was a commercial and critical success. It won Best Picture at the Oscars and got mm-hmm. Hitchcock his first Best Director nomination. He then went on to have a very prolific 1940s, making mostly espionage thrillers. If, yeah. you, if you really break down the 40s, yeah, it, it's it's wild to think about him because I remember we, we talked about this with Fritz Lang a little bit. We'll have Fritz Lang 
and Hitchcock, while they have so similar careers coming over from Europe, is they did a lot of spy movies. Mm-hmm. And they kind of, they kind of kind of set the stage, which we've never really discussed fully in depth at this point. They really kind of set the stage for the spy genre in mm-hmm. the in the 30s and 40s. It's interesting. Yeah. So he from 1940 to 1946, he worked for Selznick. Uh, and then he got traded. It's like a like a yep. <laughs> pro athlete. Um, Selznick sold a fully packaged Hitchcock film starring uh, Ingrid Bergman and Cary Grant to RKO Man. Uh, to cover. Selznick had made a King Vidor uh, Western called Duel in the Sun that yeah. had flopped. Yeah. And, and Selznick was in need of money. And so he had already put this movie together. They hadn't started making it yet. Um, but he said, hey, I got this. It's Ingrid Bergman and Cary Grant. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock RKO said sold and so RKO got Notorious which would be Hitchcock's biggest film to date and with the success of Notorious Hitchcock would buy out his contract from RKO and start his own production company Transatlantic Pictures he made two films under Transatlantic uh, Rope Mm -hmm. uh, which was very kind of cutting edge uh, uh, you know simulated one take film and under Capricorn, which I I've never seen. Yeah, never that's seen that one. yeah under Capricorn. I think that's the. I always get confused with that in the Paradigm case because one of them has Gregory Peck in it, and I can't remember if it's under under Cap or Capricorn or this looks. Yeah, I've never seen this one. This looks looks like an odd odd one. Eighteen thirties. Well, a lot of people didn't see that one because. Uh, <laughs> um, because his transatlantic pictures went under, and he. Okay. Uh, he started a partnership with Warner Brothers at that point. Um, okay. His first film for Warner Brothers was another huge success for him, Strangers on a Train. Yep. In the mid-1950s, Hitchcock went on to make three very successful films with Grace Kelly, Dial M for Murder, Rear Window, and To Catch a Thief. Mm-hmm. And at that point, in addition to directing many successful films, Hitchcock became the first director to make a household brand of himself yep. by launching Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Mm-hmm. This was an anthology television series focused on espionage, horror, and thrillers, the same genres that Hitchcock had had become known for in theaters, with each episode being presented by Hitchcock himself, which was when he kind of established his on-screen persona of being very dry with very morbid humor Um, and... and You know, the the logo with his his profile, this is when he really became a brand. Yeah, which we, we kind of talked about a little bit when we did Psycho, because... Uh, with Psycho, he used that crew from that TV show to shoot Psycho to lower to keep the cost low for the budget. Mm-hmm. Um, but he used the TV show that, like he very much like how Walt Disney was at that time with his show is that he would kind of use it as a, he would use his brand as a way to promote his other material as a thing. So like I know like his trailer for Psycho was very much like the the TV like the TV show where he's just like he'll tell you something terrible happens here or he'll about to say something really important and then just goes away but it's, he's he's the main character of the trailer. You don't really see Anthony Perkins, you don't see Gently. It's just Hitchcock walking around the set mm-hmm. like you so said he's kind of one of the first directors to like basically become their own a, a celebrity in their own right. Is the mm-hmm. thing because yeah. of this show. So on the heels of the success of the TV show, Hitchcock made two more films. One was a remake of his previous British film, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Yep. Uh, this one starred Jimmy Stewart in their second collaboration after Rope. And then the next film, uh, The Wrong Man, was a much cheaper film shot in black and white starring Henry Fonda. Yeah. Uh, Hitchcock would return to working with Stewart for his next project, an adaptation of a French novel called D'Entre les Morts. 
mm-hmm. uh, which translates to From Among the Dead by French mystery writing duo Boyot Narsejac. Okay. I think. I think that's it. Yeah. Let me know. French fans, let yeah. me know. Pierre uh, Boyot and Thomas Narsejac. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I butchered butch that more than you did, is the thing. So that's fine. <laughs> Hitchcock had tried to buy the rights to the duo's previous novel, She Was She Who Was No More, um, but a French director beat him to the rights, and that ultimately became the film uh, Les Diabolique. Yeah, from uh, yeah, mm-hmm. from uh, from Clues Clouseau or whatever. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Truffaut has since suggested that the writing duo then wrote Dantre Les More directly for Hitchcock knowing that he had his eye on their um, work. On their uh, work. Oh, interesting. But they have they have denied this. They they said that wasn't the case. But either way they knew they knew he was interested. Yeah. Uh and Hitchcock had told producers at Paramount, um, which was he had just moved over to Paramount. Hitchcock told producers at Paramount he did not want to miss out on their next novel. So Paramount purchased the book the day it was published in France and had a translator at the studio translate it to English for Hitchcock because the English translation wasn't due out for another six yeah. months. You're like, God, I hope this doesn't suck. Like, you, just, <laughs> you just bought this. Uh, once Hitchcock had approved and everything had been shored up, um, multiple writers started taking their shots at the screenplay. The first a- adaptation was from uh, the screenwriter for The Wrong Man, Maxwell Anderson. Mm-hmm. Uh, he produced the first draft, which was titled Darkling, I Listen. Ooh, I hate that title. Uh, many agreed that Darkling I Listened uh, was was far too confusing, but prep began for the film anyway. They were like, we'll figure it out. We'll bring somebody else in. Uh, next up was writer Alec Koppel, who would mm-hmm. make some edits to um, Darkling I Listened, at least enough to get screen credit for the final version. Uh, but then the script was passed to rising writer Samuel A. Taylor. Taylor had started as a playwright and had recently come to Hollywood to adapt his hit play Sabrina Fair, which mm. became Sabrina with Audrey Hepburn. Yeah, by Billy Wilder. Yeah. Um, so Taylor collaborated with Billy with with Hitchcock on the script, and the final version, titled "From Among the Dead," which was the fr- the English translation of the title, was greenlit for the film. Mm-hmm. For casting, Hitchcock had already promised the lead to Jimmy Stewart, and he had young actress Vera Miles in mind for the lead. Hitchcock had put Miles in an episode of his television show, and she had been in The Wrong Man, and he believed that she was on the verge of being Hollywood's next big star. Uh, As it has often been noted, Hitchcock himself had an obsession with blonde actresses. He was very possessive of actresses who had come up in his films, uh, and he had very famously kind of taken it as an insult when Grace Kelly had retired from acting to become Princess of Monaco just after finishing To Catch a Thief. That was her next to last film. Yeah, I have some thoughts on that with this movie, too. <laughs> uh, so Hitchcock was then enraged when after prepping costumes and set decoration for Vera Miles uh, to be playing the lead of Madeline, uh, Miles revealed to him that she was pregnant. Yeah. And he was said, you're dead to me. We're, we're not holding this movie any longer because um, again hitchcock was not a a a loving individual is, yeah. is the thing especially towards women i just gotta be honest he he was he was a very problematic person as we look at now with with kind of 2023 vision 2023 yes. eyes is a thing uh yes he was from from many reports very vindictive towards yes. uh 
Fear of Miles, and the same thing happened later on with Tippi Hedren. Yep. Um, and she she has later said that she kind of married a, a man that she hated just to get Hitchcock off her back because he would he would kind of leave you alone. Yeah. Once you were like married and there was like a man in your life. Yeah. Um, so he out Vera Miles is out. He's he's done with her. And so they promptly replaced her with Kim Novak. Mm-hmm. Uh, Novak was under contract with Columbia Pictures at the time, but Columbia agreed to lend Novak to Paramount for Vertigo in exchange for Jimmy Stewart coming to do Bell Book and Candle with Novak, which Columbia already had in the works. Yeah, which I, I could also talk about briefly at the end of this as well. <laughs> but we'll, we'll continue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Hitchcock rounded out the crew of the film with his regular collaborators, a method of his that would be part of the reason he would later earn the respect of the Cahir du Cinema crowd. Uh, legendary costume designer Edith Head began working with Hitchcock. Uh, she first came up for Rear Window because the character of Lisa Carroll Fremont needed to be mm-hmm. dressed in the finest of fashions. And Edith Head was kind of the high fashion costume designer. She continued to work with Hitchcock on The Trouble with Harry, To Catch a Thief, and The Man Who Knew Too Much. Mm -hmm. The Trouble with Harry had also been Hitchcock's first collaboration with composer Bernard Herrmann. Herrmann had been a composer and conductor for radio when Orson Welles recruited him into composing uh, to score his first film, Citizen Kane. Mm -hmm. Not a bad bad first film score. Not a bad first Uh, film score. Everyone talks about Wells having a great debut. Come on, Bernard Herrmann with Citizen Kane as your opener. Yeah. Uh, so Vertigo was going to be Herrmann's fourth score for Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. One new collaborator on the team for Vertigo was Saul Bass, a successful ad man and graphic designer mm-hmm. who had burst onto the film scene in 1955 with his opening credits designed for Otto Preminger's The Man with the Golden Arm. Uh, up until Bass's emergence, opening credits in films were often given like one static background for cast and crew to be listed in front of them i saw an interview with scorsese where he was like it was always if the movie was based on a book you always opened with like the front of the book and then you would like open it up and then it would be like each page was like (laughs) well it's funny that's how the thin man starts the thin Mm -hmm. man started with the the cover of the book it was just william powell was the man on the cover is what Mm -hmm. it was it was just the book yeah um so Bass blended kind of avant-garde graphic design with animation and became an instant sensation in Hollywood. As a fan of Bass's work, Hitchcock recruited him to not only design the opening credits for the film, but to also design some of the kind of special effect animation sequences that would happen throughout the movie. Uh, so with that team put together, they got started. So let's let's hop into some favorite scenes, Brandon. Okay. I'm trying to where I want to start here. Okay. <laughs> First off, oh, it's shot in Vista Vision. We didn't mention that, but shot in Vista Vision, which we discussed on our White Christmas episode back in the like a, yes, a year yes, or two yes, ago. Yes. So it's beautiful because it's Vista Vision, Technicolor, so it's widescreen. The colors are just amazing, very vibrant, luscious. Like, and, and that's one thing I, I'll kind of continue to kind of go through this favorite scenes is that like the way Hitchcock uses color in this movie. Uh, this is where I say it's his most artful film, and specifically with green. Green mm-hmm. is this really key color that keeps running through this movie, specifically with with a uh, Madeline Judy, Madeline and Judy being the same person essentially. Um, uh, Kim Novak's character is that really anytime we see her, for the most part, uh, like her, both both introductions for Madeline and for Judy, she's in green attire. 
She's wearing like mm-hmm. a green a green sweater when she's Judy when they first see her. As Madeline, she's wearing a green like evening gown, uh, basically. Um, and then you begin to see green pop throughout all those scenes. If it's a green bo- like shopping cart in the background, a, gr- a green flower box. Um, and the interesting part too is that I think green only comes into Scotty's life when he takes Madeline back to his house is that all of a sudden Scotty's in this green sweater mm-hmm. and has green pillows and a green ice chest. It's just, it's just the way the green keeps coming out and it's coming. It's doing that. Hitchcock's doing that to pay off the, the, the final, that, that kind of big reveal of when Judy finally becomes Madeline uh, in her outfit and everything in the hairstyle, because she's, she comes out, she emerges from this green light is the thing. So mm. it's this green always associated with kind of like weirdly um, uh, Scotty's obsession is mm. the thing. So I just want to talk about that very briefly was the thing. Um, but right off the, right out of the gate, Saul Bass's opening titles are amazing. Is yeah. the thing like they're just, they they really bring you into it and it, just, it feels so different than any other Hitchcock film before. Like really, because because when you get this intro, you begin to see like again uh, the next few films that Hitchcock does have Bass doing the intro, and mm-hmm. so it's it's it also feels like an early talk about Hitchcock's uh, effect on the spy genre. It feels like an early version of James Bond title credit sequences is the thing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but then the I'll, I'll say my next scene. They'll skip to you. Uh, opening scene of just Stewart coming in. Like again, the way it the opening frame is of the ladder and it's the hand coming in, grabbing it really fast. And it's this kind of big chase scene across the, the tops of the buildings in San Francisco. And, and it does a great job of just establishing, um, Stewart's dilemma for the whole movie. That's the thing that this movie does a great job at is that it really establishes very early on and every kind of first scene of the character, what their issue will be throughout the entire film. And also what will kind of be their downfall in a, in a, in a way is the thing. Cause we'll even with Midge and then with the, not the downfall, but the, the, I guess the, the good part for the, the main bad guy, uh, uh, Gavin, like mm-hmm. it all very much established. Everything is, is established very early on. Even when he's, when, when, when Sky's talking to Midge in the first scene, is that like, Oh, I can't get over it until I have another traumatic event. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the thing and that's like that's the gonna be the ending of the movie basically um yeah. but i love the opening with with stewart there the, the titles i love again the use of the technicolor and color throughout um but what's the scene for you um yeah i mean i was gonna say honestly just lump them all in together but all of barbara Belgetti's scenes as midge i the character of midge is one that i really love because um hitchcock very famously i mean this is not like isn't anything he like ever said in an interview, yeah. but you know, the, a lot of the the scholars who have kind of broken down his films have come to the conclusion that like it, Hitchcock thought that glasses made women like a sexual non-entity. Like if, if you were wearing glasses, yeah, then he thought you were just like asexual. Yeah. And, and that may in part, if you really want to get into uh, breaking down Hitchcock psychosexually, uh, his mm-hmm. daughter wore glasses. So, you know, maybe yeah. that's a, you know, it could be worse, yeah. <laughs> but, um, 
uh, his daughter Pat, who he put in several of his movies, kind of wore these big thick glasses. So, so yeah. that's kind of part of it. But there are two people I don't want to analyze their sexual things like that, and that's Hitchcock and Elvis. Those are the two. <laughs> I don't. Um, but I think what I what I really like about it is it's it's weird, but like you know, in in he has all these kind of film fatales in these movies, but I think in him having Midge be this like even though she's a beautiful woman, but having her in like glasses and, and him thinking of her as like, you know, there's never a point in the movie where like Scotty's ever going to think of her as equal to Madeline, you know? And, <laughs> but in, in doing so she becomes like the most human female character. I think we ever got out of Hitchcock. And, and so I think she's like a super compelling character and she's the only voice of reason in the whole movie. Yeah. And, um, and, and so she's great. I love Midge. I love the scene. You know, um, I love to see like and and I think, you know, as you keep coming back to it, um, what I kind of alluded to earlier is is the first time you watch this movie, you're like, oh, it's Jimmy Stewart. He's he's, he's yeah, Frank Capra. He's, yeah. yeah, he's, he's, he's a nice guy. And and then the more and more you watch this movie, you realize that he's the villain of this movie. Like, yeah. he's an awful, awful person. And it and it's not just, you know, after he's become obsessed with Madeline, you know, there's that the early scene with Midge where he's like, you weren't we engaged at some point? And she's like, yes, obviously. I'm in love with you. And yeah. he's like, oh, yeah. Well, no, I believe well, it, yeah. like, it was you that ended it. <laughs> uh, but it's great. And I love the scene when she does uh, an incredible painting of herself, putting yeah. herself into <laughs> that portrait. And he's just like, I, I don't want to go see that movie anymore, Midge. Yeah. And then she's stupid, stupid, stupid. Um, oh, no, I, I wrote down, I was like, this is like Philip Seymour Hoffman and Boogie Nights. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Just an idiot. Just an idiot. Oh. Oh, and she she comes to the hospital and plays the music for him, and then you never see her again. And then no, she's, literally, she's I wrote I, first off. I wrote, I go, "There's no way they're the same age," because that's no, the, no. They're, they're supposed to be the same yeah, age. Yeah, yeah, I love when he's like, "You remember? You remember this guy from college?" I'm like, "No," because he was 20 years old. <laughs> <than me. laughs> I was like, well, there's no way they're the same age. That just shows you that, like, again, you put on a, put a woman in glasses, and Hitchcock's like. Yeah, she's like Hitch- Hitchcock did say Hitchcock said when he was sitting down with Truffaut, he had two regrets about this movie, and one of them was that Jimmy Stewart was too old in this. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the other regret was a little nitpick we can talk about later, but yeah. um, but he he was like, I love Jimmy Stewart, I love working with him, but like he he looks forty nine or even probably looks yeah. older than that, but he he was forty nine when they made this. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that, and that was the thing I'll bring, I guess, real quick, the tidbit, is that so they do Bell, Book, and Candle after this, and mm-hmm. it's it's Novak and Stewart as, like, romantic interest. And I think Stewart, when he watched it, he was like, yeah, I'm going to stop being romantic lead now. Mm-hmm. He was just like, because when you watch it, because that's where it's like, they're trying to be, like, a, a, a legit romance. This this here is, like, a tragic romance, you could say. Yeah, but it's, yeah it's creepy. It's, it's creepy, creepy no matter what way you it's, cut it, yeah, so but it's, it's fine. It's, it's still, like, supposed to be kind of a... It's... it's The score's kind of romantic. It's it's supposed to be somewhat of a weird romance if, if Scotty just gets out of his own way and stops being a creep, basically. But Belvin Candle's, like, a legit rom, like rom-com. And, mm-hmm. and he looks so old compared to Novak because she's just, like stunning and gorgeous and then you have great hair wrinkled Stuart. like she just <laughs> loves like she's obsessed with him and like it it's a fun movie it's i like the movie but i think Stuart watched he's like yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna hop off this train i'm gonna stop being 
the romantic lead in movies <laughs> because I'm getting too old for this, basically. And that's what he kind of continues the rest of his, his kind of career is that he doesn't really do those type roles again. But here, that creepy factor it is, works. Is, is a benefit to the movie. Yeah. And they didn't realize that when they were making a Bellwood and Candle is that like it, it the, the age difference hurts a real romance. It helps this creepiness where he becomes obsessed with her. Um, but yeah, it, it, and that's the thing talking about how Hitchcock uses Stewart as this kind of like he's known for these kind of warm hearted and Capra movies. And it is it is I easily I haven't seen there's a few older Stewart movies when he's like when he was younger, basically, where he plays kind of a. Some of a bad guy, creepy guy that I haven't all haven't seen all of them, but this is pro, this is his creepiest role, his entire oh, yeah. career, just because he's such a like, and, and why I say it's his person, I think Hitchcock's his personal film. It feels like he's playing Hitchcock is the thing, like mm. with the like obsession uh, obsession over this woman, her looks, like how how she looks for me is the thing, not mm-hmm. for her, how she looks for me. And I have this real like kind of feeling that possibly subconsciously, this is a movie about Hitchcock trying to find his next Grace Kelly mm-hmm. is, is the whole yeah. thing is that he and he because he's, he's putting her in a blonde because you got to think he, he if if he did vert if Grace Kelly was still acting. I don't know if he'd do vertigo if he did, he probably couldn't cast her in it because mm-hmm. it's like she to him is I think had the perfect version of his cinema kind of heroin, I guess is a thing. Mm-hmm. And it's the rest of his career is him trying to emulate her. Yeah. And, and there's not really any record of there being any contention between the two of them nope. when they were working together, but every female lead after this is not just J- like J- Janet Lee. There wasn't either. Janet Lee didn't have anything. I don't mm-hmm. think either with him, but she but, also I mean, is only in for like a half the movie. Yeah. So. One. Yeah. 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 And then, yeah, yeah. And I think, I don't think Vera Miles had anything good to say about coming back either. Um, yeah. and Te- Tippy Hedren definitely did it. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's all here. That, that's, that's one of the, you know, incredible things about kind of studying Hitchcock and watching this one is you're like, dude just made a movie about himself. And I think he knows it. Like, yeah. it's, it's too on the nose to not get it. Yeah. And to hear him talk about it too, because, you know, he, he, he brings up, necrophilia and, and and the you know the the controlling aspect of this character and all of that he brings it all up in in the interviews so yeah he definitely knew it wasn't subconscious that he was like but um i'm just made a little suspense thriller guys yeah <laughs> no but i i love kind of the like again these, these kind of investigation scenes that stewart has again talk about kind of a more artful movie but also still have kind of the the idea of suspense in his films is like when Stuart is like following uh, Madeline where it's like it's following her when he's driving through San Francisco, when she goes to the cemetery, when she goes to the art gallery. Um, it, it, it's a very like you're having to. Yeah, again, what, what Hitchcock does in this movie, the idea of talking about objective versus subjective camera objective mm-hmm. meaning you're you're watching the cam the camera is a, a non-character in your movie it is it is observing what is going on vertigo makes the camera subjective where it mm-hmm. always has a specific point of view if it's a lot of times scotty's point of view and it's the idea of like making it kind of voyeuristic is that our audience the audience is put in the person in, in the point of view of scotty and even when the camera is not from sky's pov the camera still feels very subjective where it's like trying to tell you something 
it feels like it's being an active part in the story is the thing an example again it's like when when judy looks to camera an hour and a half into the movie and then we cut to a flashback mm-hmm. like it's just a very odd thing but yeah this idea of subjective where like it's we're following the or the cameras as sky's pov for a lot of the movie and which i think is very good at this point in time where probably not a lot of directors i think directors are, directors are definitely doing it but probably not the same skill level as Hitchcock in this moment. It feels like for how long he does it in this movie, because it's such a subjective movie throughout the entire thing from Sky's perspective. Um, and again, talk about the technical aspect, but the but the 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 set or the location of San Francisco. We talked about this mm-hmm. invasion of the body snatchers of how well Kaufman used it there. Hitchcock uses it to where he makes this lush, like God, the shot of the Golden Gate Bridge and they're down at the bottom is mm-hmm. unbelievable. And I like I, I was like, you can't get this nowadays the way it's done because there's probably some like guardrail up that blocks it so you can't get mm-hmm. the water. And I was just like, this this is so gorgeous. Is the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, all the all that that whole and I mean, I think Herman's a, a huge part of it too, but the whole yeah. tailing sequence is very long and yes. no dialogue nope. and, and, and until kind of the end we start to get a little bit of exposition as he starts you know asking about the painting going yeah. into the inn but um but yeah it's just the, the costumes and you know it's it, it again and again it's you know the the most important thing about being an auteur is the team that you put together and it's the yeah it's the costumes it's the the colors it's the score mm-hmm. um that you can just sit and watch it and it's mesmerizing one thing I want to talk about is we talk about your the 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 kind of from a sexual perspective in this movie is and mm-hmm. I can't remember who I who I can't remember where, where I learned, heard this from but the specific thing I want to talk about is when after she's jumped in the golden in, in the water at Golden Gate and she comes or he takes her back to her place Hitchcock does this thing again with the camera where Stewart's on his couch the camera pans like basically 180 degrees around the room so we go to hitchcock or we go to stewart and then we're we're going around we get the kitchen door and we see her dress is hanging uh on a hanger like drying and then we pan back to the the bedroom and the bed and we pretty much see that novak is like or that the madeline is naked in his bed so the idea in that one shot we we show that like He's basically taking her clothes off, seen her naked, put him in his bed, and now he's just waiting for her to wake up. And it's very like revealing this kind of um, he he how he's gone to her space. There's been some sort of violation here, is the thing, unbeknownst to her, is is mm-hmm. the thing. He has seen her naked, and now that thought is like gonna kind of run throughout this movie of where like this obsession starts is the thing. It gets even stronger as the movie goes on. Um, mm. where it's everything's kind of viewed in a subtext way sexually with these two characters or with, from of Sky's perspective. Yeah. Um, what you have another scene? Uh, I mean, you know, Madeline's death is yeah, just incredible. It's, mm-hmm. it's so well done. The everything, I love that location. I love the mission, you know, that you get these huge shots and there's like nobody around and mm-hmm. her running and him chasing him and the score. Cause yeah, up until then the scores, you know, once they, 
quote unquote fall in love, the score gets very like sweet and sweeping romantic. You know, there's the, the kissing at the ocean and the waves crashing and uh, wow, they're in love. And the score is like trying to tell you to take this at face value, even though, you know, you shouldn't. Um, yeah. But then, you know, they get there and they're kissing outside the church and the score just starts getting like a little weird. And they're like, ah, mm-hmm. something's going on. And then she starts running. And then you get, obviously, the iconic kind of stairwell scene. Um, and I, I, Stuart's so good in it. And it's, yep. you know, her going... I, when I was a kid, I mean, her going by that window is is shocking, you know? Mm-hmm. It's... um, They scream, yeah. yeah. And it, it's, you know, it's... It, everyone talks about how groundbreaking it was in Psycho when he killed off Marion. But, I mean, this is like like halfway through the movie and it's like yeah. okay where do we go from here yeah it's it's right around the hour hour and 10 minute marks so it's a little under over halfway and the the other part is that like it's building towards this romance it's building mm-hmm. towards like they've kissed they you can tell there's attraction between them that they're in love and the, yeah and and it, they're they're in love and now the rest of this movie is going to be about him breaking this curse that you know that's on her yeah um it's it's something we've we've talked about it before. I, I way back I, in the day I published a article on Medium about I how gonna bring, I was going to bring that up today. Yes, how many of so many of Hitchcock's movies make you think they're about ghosts and then they're not. That yeah. that's a recurring theme in his is is oh something supernatural is happening and then and then it's it's really human kind of human evil or or whatever. And and this is this is another one. You know, you've got this whole storyline of she's haunted by her ancestor that's driving her crazy, and then it's like. Oh, well, now she's gone, yeah. so don't worry but, about that but, but then we pivot, and then Scotty's obsessed with the ghost as well, mm-hmm. is the idea of the memory of Madeline, is that this ghost of her is what motivates him. Oh, is man, that, I, love the, I love the kind of fever dream sequence, but oh, the, sh- the shot of the two of them, him and the husband, and then Carlotta like in between them yeah. and she like looks yeah. up at him that is haunting that that yeah. shot is is crazy again that's where he's getting experimental in this movie yeah the animated more. bouquet yeah. of flowers that's the animation yeah. on it is wild again just jimmy stewart's big face kind of colors mm-hmm. going around and changing looks like you're in a, in a carnival fun house basically of nightmares um and yeah it's just and then and again kind of this again talk about the obsession the ghost that haunts him is that everywhere he goes, he sees something that appears to be her. He sees the lady outside the the apartment that that's in a similar outfit, but she's she basically is in the same car, the same green car that mm-hmm. uh, that Madeline had. So she bought it off the guy who used to live here. Um, then she then he sees a lady uh, in Ernie's the restaurant. He thinks it's her, but it's not. And mm-hmm. then when when he sees uh, when he sees Judy for the first time, it's almost like he thinks it's a dream, but then realizes that she's different enough that she's it's so similar. It's, it's not it's not it's not uh, in his mind. It's like she's different right. enough that she looks somewhat like her. I have to get a better look is the thing. Yeah. And it becomes a similar kind of like cat and mouse him following her investigator like he was earlier on with Madeline mm-hmm. is the thing. And to give Novak props here is that Novak, when she opens the door to Stuart, just gives an incredible performance mm-hmm. because I kind I want to watch it. I was like, does she like, 
it's very subtle, but like, does she give a reaction that like she recognizes him? Mm-hmm. She she immediately kind of goes into the like, who are you? What are you doing here? Oh, I'm just probably some girl that you that you fell. In. And she plays it so well, where you feel like this is a completely different person yeah. he's interacting with. Is the thing? Yeah, it's a completely normal reaction to give if a strange man shows up at your door, but it also has a, <laughs> a twinge of oh my god, I'm I'm in trouble. He found yes. me. Um, yes, yes. He's like, we'll, we'll we'll talk about that. A little bit later on about what kind of Hitchcock was going for with that, but yeah, it's a, it's a hard it's a hard scene to pull off. Um, I think the the more and more I come back to this, I think the most disturbing moment in this movie uh-huh. is when Scotty's trying to talk Judy into dyeing her hair, and he says completely earnestly, without a twinge of irony, yes! he says, "Please, Judy, it can't matter that much to you." And that the is the most. Down. That is the most chilling line in this oh whole movie. Oh my god! Is she is oh. nothing but an object to him at this point? L- yeah, that is L- that is where all these all this talk of like necrophilia in this movie comes yeah. from. Is she might as well be a corpse to him? Um, he is just dressing her up to look like Madeline. And I wrote that. <laughs> Continue, sorry, sorry. Yeah, that that the every time he says that line and the way Stuart delivers it, it's like there is not another thought in his mind that no. she might have any problems with this, like. Because the thing that makes it worse is that right before she's like, I just want you to love me for me, like, like me, please just like love me. I'll like, I'll, I, I just love me for who I am. And he's just like, your hair, we need to change your hair. <laughs> and she's like, no. And she like literally like crawl, like, like she, she pulls away from him. Yeah. And that's when he's just, and that's when he says the line of just like, it doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt you any. Like it doesn't, it, might, it can't mean much to you is the thing. Yeah. My, it, my need for you to look like this dead woman yes. is so much stronger than your need yes. to have brown hair. Come on. And it's just like, and that's when like that, that sets it off where the next it's like, he's, he's dressing her up in the image that he wants her to be. And we can talk about this idea of Hitchcock as a personal story when they're like going to the, the to to get clothes or whatever and he's mm-hmm. just like no i want it like this i want it like this i want this type gentleman knows what he likes yeah and then it's like and then he like he breaks down like what he wants for her even her 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 like her dress like her her dinner dress her evening ground dress um and then you have the like have her walking a certain way and looking at the hills she's in and he's like we'll take those but in brown is the thing and it, it's like the entire time he is not thinking about her feelings whatsoever um, mm-hmm. in the moment. It's like, yeah. And then it's that, that is all just leading up to the scene in her room, which is, I I mean, to me, the, the most incredible scene in, in the movie. Cause it's yes. like, you've got Herman's playing this like twisted version of the love theme. And she's just like, she's given herself over completely yeah she's she's just not trying anymore and he's in like complete delusion at this point and you get that incredible you get the green light and then you mm-hmm. get that incredible shot where he's all they're kissing and he's back at the mission all of a sudden that's a wild shot like yeah. i want to i kind of want to look at how they if, if you found out I'll, 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 yeah we'll talk about that how in, they did in, it because on set life yeah because they do i feel like they do a 360 of the entire room mm-hmm. and at some point it's like it's he's back in the last time he saw her is the thing. Yeah. And it's, it's just so incredibly done. Um, yeah. And then, he, and then, you know, last scene, he, he's great. He's that 
he's so manic and you're a very apt pupil. He repeats himself. Yeah. Right. Well, like leading up to that, what I love too is that, is that when they're getting ready to go out, is that she's finally like given in mm-hmm. to this image of what he wants. And then she's like, fine. Well, I still love him. It's such a toxic relationship. I still love him as long as I'm the way he wants me to be. Because again, Stuart, to his credit in that scene, when after she's like kind of conformed to that idea, he is much more warm and like, yeah. where do you want to go? Like we, yeah. oh, oh, you love Ernest, Madeline's, don't you? Madeline's back now. He's yeah, happy. It, it's He's like I'm, I'm getting to have the life I always went with Madeline. And then that moment when he sees the necklace, and it's the oh shit. <laughs> like, is it now? It's like, he's like, oh, yeah, I forgot. I'm a detective. (laughs) (laughs) It's like you see his eyes. like, Oh, I forgot my job for a second. (laughs) They hoodwinked me is the thing. And then to top that later on is when he's like, we're going to go out of town for something to eat. And they're driving. And then it comes over Novak's face like, oh, no, I know where he's going. (laughs) And she doesn't think he's figured it out yet. She just thinks he's like this morbid doing, obsession doing some weird Madeline some weird, thing. Yeah. Some weird Madeline thing but she knows that he's going there and when she thought she was in the clear she now realizes she's not in the clear anymore and yes to what you're saying when they get the mission Stuart is so good mm-hmm. in that scene when they're climbing up the tower because he said he's he's angry he's aggressive I think when he's like He's swinging her back and forth. Is it closer? It's almost brutal the way it's being done. Mm-hmm. And you honestly can't believe it's Jimmy Stewart is the one who's doing the performance. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I mean, you, cause, cause he, it does kind of break him out of it, you know, as, as he, you can see kind of Scotty coming back Yeah, as, as this is all going down and you know that he's, you know, he's not taking her up there to, he's taking her up to, there to confront her and to like shake the truth out of her. And, um, yes, and you know it's not i don't think you ever for a second think he's taking her up there to like no. throw her off in some kind of mad revenge play but, no. but as you watch him kind of overcome the vertigo you also see him overcome all that trauma and and he's just back to being scotty by by the time he's at the top and then of course yeah. you know that's the that incredible final shot when he's now just like fully comfortable to just go stand right on the ledge and look down i mean it's like when i first saw it it was one of those where I was like, that's the end. Cause it's just so, <laughs> it's so abrupt. But mm. again, to talk, it's so abrupt. Like, it's just like she falls. There's no, like, if it's a modern day film, there's, or I like, say, late 90s, 2000s in a way, like a, of, a, of a suspense thriller. It's like, there's always some sort of like, uh, epilogue type scene afterwards and well, look, if, if, if you're if you're psycho and <laughs> two years later he does be an exactly scene. exactly and here it's just like it just ends it just ends on this on this note of of darkness and it ends on but it's it's a very i guess uh like efficient movie in that way that like we don't need anymore is that mm-hmm. it, it literally we it's the 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 whole thing of the movie is the opening scene of stewart is when he develops vertigo or develops the thing and can get vertigo. Um, that's the opening scene of him. And the last scene of him is him overcoming it. That's your whole arc. That's like the physical arc of it is that he had to deal with two traumatic events and 
each one will haunt like though now with this one it actually overtakes the previous one that's kind mm. of the idea is that like you almost need a traumatic event that's such it's even more traumatic than the previous one it feels like in hitchcock's world here to overplay it and to reset you basically and now the rest yeah. of his life he, this will be part of his like dna of what happened here and probably the realization that like you know if i didn't act like a dick the entire time i'd probably be okay yeah. we'd probably be good i just would have had vertigo <laughs> that's all yeah. it was I had vertigo me and midge could have gotten together yeah uh, <laughs> all right on set life on set life because we did a lot about of, of scenes on, yeah, we on did. that one so yeah uh so kim novak hitchcock and edith head got off to a rocky start as kim novak immediately protested her costuming she hated the gray suit that hitchcock and head had picked out for the character of madeline uh novak went straight to hitchcock and told him that she refused to wear the suit she found it too tight and confining and she said everyone knows that gray is a terrible color for blondes uh hitchcock said too bad you have to wear the suit because i'm the director and i picked it uh he kind of stormed off and and head sounds uh, like a scene from this movie yeah, yeah, exactly. Head yeah. kind of pulled Novak aside and explained that they they had purposely picked the gray, knowing it didn't go with blonde hair because they thought it would give Madeline kind of this kind of ghostly ethereal look. Mm-hmm. Um, these are also, you know, all costuming decisions that were made with Vera Miles. So it's like Novak's yeah. just coming in and be, and everybody's like, all right, put this on. And she's like, wait, I don't get any say in this. Yeah. Um, but Novak ended up putting on the suit and she actually credits it for helping her find the character of Madeline. As she said, uh, it was so confining and stiff. It really helped her tap into like Madeline's kind of very aloof, cold nature. Mm -hmm. Uh, After this interaction, Novak and head became great collaborators. Novak did many interviews and kind of spoke very fondly of, of Edith head. And the two of them came up with the idea for Novak to not wear a bra while she was playing Judy, which was very controversial for a film that was made during the Hayes code. Yeah. Uh, but Novak said this was like huge for Judy because she was free of all the tight clothing that Madeline had been forced into. And she said yeah. that really helped her find the character of Judy too. It, 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 it was noticeable. It, it, <laughs> it, it was noticeable. I will say that. Um, so the film opened with 16 days of location shooting in San Francisco in September of 1957. Uh, Hitchcock had picked the setting of San Francisco himself. Friends of his said he had always appreciated the bohemian feel of San Francisco, and he often called it the Paris of the of America. So when he was adapting a French novel that was set in Paris, he immediately said, "We're going to move it to San Francisco." It's it's funny when I posted Invasion of the Body Snatchers clip uh, on social, I had several comments because we're talking about San Francisco and the clip. People are like, "That's the way it used to be until Tech Bros came in." Like, like some people were upset about the tech bros coming in and they wanted to vent in the comments which is fine uh about how that's the way san francisco w- wishes it was today so yeah now the tech bros are the pod people dude yeah uh <laughs> the filming location for the mission was in san juan bautista california mm-hmm. which was a re- location that was recommended to hitchcock by his producer's daughter Um, Hitchcock went and checked it out. He loved the look of the location, but the tower on the mission, which was obviously a major part of the story had burned down years earlier. So the tower uh, had to be built during the stage work and then superimposed onto the location footage. That makes sense of why it looks that way. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
So after 16 days on location, the production moved to the Paramount lot in Hollywood to film on sound stages, which Hitchcock much preferred to location work. Yep. Uh, it was while on the sound stage that Hitchcock turned to his DP, Robert Burks, for some camera wizardry. It had always been a pursuit of Hitchcock's to capture the visual experience of losing consciousness through a, a point of view of the camera. Specifically, he said the way the earth seems to fall away from you just before you pass out. He said he had wanted to do this since mm -hmm. Rebecca, but he had never figured out how to pull it off technically. So with Scotty's vertigo being such an important plot point to the film, uh, so important that at this point it had become the working title of the show, uh, Hitchcock turned to Burks and said, we've got to figure out how to pull this shot off. Uh, Burks then asked his second unit DP, Ehrman Roberts, to help him crack that puzzle. And Roberts is the one who came up with the now famous Dolly Zoom combo that created the the vertigo shot. Yep. Um, I think we've talked about it on the, this show before, but yeah, it's this idea that you you dolly out and zoom in, or you, you dolly in and zoom. Yeah, dolly out and zoom in. Yeah. So yes. you 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 physically pull the camera back, but you zoom the lens in, and so you're. Your frame stays the same. Your center point stays the same, but everything else, all the depth in the frame changes completely. And it gives you that feeling of like tunnel vision, like prime examples. It's like, it's the jaw shot. It's when, mm -hmm. it's when Brody hears about the, uh, the, the, um, the shark in the water when he's sitting mm -hmm. with his wife and we, we, we go in and it basically, Usually the vertigo shot nowadays when it should be used, I think, is when there is a a, a dramatic change in a character's yeah. environment. Yeah, I mean, I always, I always think of Scorsese and Goodfellas. I think that's Goodfellas. one of the best modern uses yes. of it. Yeah, because with one Goodfellas, it's when De Niro and Le Leota are sitting at the uh, at the restaurant, and it's a big shift in a character's mm -hmm. world world or per perspective. And it's a slow dolly zoom is the thing where you don't realize how the like if you're paying attention to the two characters, you won't notice fully that the background is basically changing and I think getting closer is what it is uh, mm -hmm. uh, in the movie. Um, but you see all the times where it's a, usually could be a, a, a scary scene where it's a change in environment for a character, uh, a change in perspective. Um, it, it you'll you'll see them a lot in movies and. They can't be used. They can't be used a ton. <laughs> is the thing they're kind of used for. Like Hitchcock's made the only one here that can that can they gets away with it doing it multiple times because it's not. But that's also the point because it's, it's, it is very disorienting and, yes, and that's yes. the goal of it in in this for sure. Yes, and it's usually from his actual perspective, not looking at the person. It's the, that's the thing mm -hmm. that we kind of switch later on is that his actually from his perspective. When the rest are like we're 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 kind of observing the character is the thing, mm -hmm. um, but we, we want to visually show there's a change in the scene. Yeah, but yeah, continue. Sorry. So another very tricky shot, kind of as you mentioned, uh, was the kiss between Scotty and Judy after Ooh. she is completely formed, transformed into Madeline. Mm -hmm. uh, this was uh, this was accomplished by moving the camera in a circle on a on a circle dolly track. Yeah. Uh, and then Stewart and Novak were on a rotating platform. And the, I figured they were on a platform. That's why. So the camera is moving with them and then they've got kind of the half set of her apartment. And then they had um, a rear projection screen set up to project okay. the other set um, from the from the stables. Yeah. Um, so 
this was a tough shot to pull off as both Novak and Stewart became very dizzy after multiple takes of this uh, because yeah. they were kissing with their eyes closed. And if you've ever been spun around in a circle while you have your <laughs> eyes closed, it's uh, extra effective. Um, and after multiple takes, Stewart ended up losing his balance and falling off the platform at one point. So talk about oh, vertigo. No. I mean... <laughs> So for the aftermath of this, uh, okay. Hitchcock relied on his collaborator Bernard Herrmann to score the film. Uh, seeing the film's themes of obsession and kind of love gone wrong, Herrmann took inspiration from Wagner's Tristan and Isolde, making Scotty and Madeline's love theme a kind of twisted variation of Wagner's sweeping romantic composition. Mm-hmm. The film premiered on May 9th, 1958, to very mixed reviews. Yeah. Uh, as did many of Hitchcock's films at the time. They at were the time, they were usually yes. very commercially successful, but they they kind of always split the critics. Uh, it technically turned a profit at the box office. It took in three point two million dollars domestically on a two point five million dollar budget. Uh, but it was much less successful financially than than Hitchcock's previous popular works. Um, Variety and the L.A. Times both said that the film was too slow for a detective mystery. <laughs> while Bosley Crowther of the New York Times called it so clever, even if it is devilishly far-fetched. Uh, in this case, Bosley Crowther called it far-fetched, but and he liked it. Mm-hmm. John McCartan of the New Yorker said Hitchcock has never before indulged in such far-fetched nonsense. So split the New York Times and the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Cahire du Cinema, which we will discuss at length in just a moment, uh, Eric Romer said, uh, Vertigo, so they say, repelled Americans. French critics, on the contrary, seem to be giving it a warm welcome. Praising the film's formal technique, he wrote that ideas and forms follow the same road, and it is because the form is pure, beautiful, rigorous, astonishingly rich, and free that we can say that Hitchcock's films, with Vertigo at the head, are about ideas in the noble platonic sense of the word. Yeah, they loved him. (laughs) Uh, Orson Welles famously said he liked Vertigo less than Rear Window, which he had openly trashed in multiple interviews leading up to that point. That sounds like Orson. Uh, Hitchcock said uh, when asked about the movie, he said it was neither a hit nor a flop. It's hard Mm -hmm. to judge, really, because we all will try to excuse ourselves when a film doesn't do well. And we'll just say the sales department just did a bad job of selling it. Uh, Hitchcock would also notably kind of take over the marketing of his films uh, not long yeah. after this with Psycho yeah. and, and leading into The Birds. Yeah. Um, while Hitchcock would go on to revitalize his career in the 1960s by gambling on his horror hit Psycho, he would still be viewed by critics as a populist filmmaker until 1962. Mm-hmm. By that point, French film magazine Cahir du Cinema had become f- famous fans of Hitchcock. The critics at Cahir du Cinema through the 1950s had developed an uh, up to this point unheard of theory that the director of a film, if a strong enough filmmaker, could be considered the one true author of the film, especially when said director chose to work with the same collaborator over many movies. Mm -hmm. This theory, which critic Andrew Saris would name auteur theory in 1962, was often referenced in the mid-1950s as the critics of Cahir du Cinema, most notably Francois Truffaut insisted that that far from being a populist film director hitchcock was an artist who instilled themes and flourishes in each of his films that could be observed when viewing them all together Mm -hmm. it was in 1962 the same year that andrew saris put a name to this theory that Truffaut was doing an interview in new york for his film jules and jim 
Truffaut said, I noticed that every journalist asked me the same question. Why do the critics of Cahirdu Cinema take Hitchcock so seriously? He's rich and successful, but his movies have no substance. In the course of an interview during which I praised Rear Window to the skies, an American critic surprised me by commenting, you love Rear Window because you know nothing about Greenwich Village. That movie is not realistic to Greenwich Village. To this absurd statement, I replied, Rear Window is not about Greenwich Village. It's a film about cinema, and I do know cinema. <laughs> Upon my return to Paris, I was still disturbed by this exchange. From my past career as a critic, in common with all of the young writers from Cahiers du Cinema, I still felt the imperative need to convince. It was obvious that Hitchcock, whose genius for publicity was equaled only by that of Salvador Dali, had in the long run been victimized in American intellectual circles because of his facetious response to interviewers and his deliberate practice of deriding their questions. In examining his films, it was obvious that he had given more thought to the potential of his art form than any of his colleagues. It occurred to me that if he would, for the first time, agree to responding seriously to, systematic, to a systematic questionnaire, the resulting document might modify the American critic's approach to Hitchcock. Uh, this quote is from the opening of Truffaut's book, Hitchcock Truffaut, which is a transcription mm -hmm. of a five-day-long interview in which Truffaut sat down with Hitchcock in 1962 and interviewed him about all of his films, which he then compiled into a book that was published in 1966. Truffaut mm -hmm. especially loved Vertigo, calling it a film that was more poetry than story and spoke about it at length with yeah. Hitchcock. It was Truffaut's book that really helped to cement Hitchcock as a filmmaking icon with both critics and audiences and pushed many critics to revisit Hitchcock's works, especially Vertigo. Uh, but despite the renewed interest in Vertigo, a rights issue kept the film from being uh, reissued or replayed from 1968 to 1983. Wow. In fact, the uh, film was almost lost completely. Um, when Universal finally acquired the rights to Vertigo in 1983, the only remaining print was in terrible shape and a rigorous restoration was undertaken to save the film. Wow. Some, of the steps, uh, some of the steps taken during the restoration have been criticized, and, and they have since been dialed back in releases since then. The restoration did save the film and was finally released in 1997. Uh, Vertigo's reputation has continued to rise among critics in the years since, and in the 2012 Sight & Sound Critics poll, which is taken once per decade. Yeah. Vertigo became the first film to dethrone Citizen Kane as the number one film among critics since the second poll, which was held in 1962. Yeah. Uh, and then in the controversial 2022 sight and sound poll, Vertigo fell only one spot to second place. Yeah. I mean, it's not, not a bad place to be. Um, you know, that makes sense because to go off another list is that the, that's the AFI um, uh, 100 list. I know they did like a they had, in ninety seven they did like a top one hundred movies and they mm. did like they they redid it ten years later in two thousand seven and Vertigo like jumped sixty spots yeah over those over that ten years and That's that when makes you'll sense see, uh, if, if, you'll you, see if like, they can get it a lot yeah you'll see like Scorsese and and Spielberg talk about like people passing around like bootleg reels of it because it was just like for the eighties it was just nowhere like yeah. you couldn't see it because you know who I know saw it Brian De Palma oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> For sure. Well, because yeah, like you said, and it's such a wild time. That's what they used to do is at De Palma, Scorsese, Spielberg. They would all pass like how we would do DVDs or Blu-rays. They would do film reels of like, hey, I got this film reel of this Hitchcock film. Um, and they would just watch. Or like, oh, well, let's let's put up the projector and let's watch. Uh, let's watch Rear Window over here. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah. All right. We've covered a lot of it already, but what works? Yeah. Let's sum it all up. One thing I want to add real quick. Yeah. Uh, I'd heard, I don't know if it's true, but I'd heard that basically one thing that like Hitchcock did blame Stewart for was, like, or basically felt like the box office gross didn't work because Stewart what was looked too old for the part. So mm-hmm. for North by Northwest, I think it was supposed to be Stewart and he cast Grant yeah. instead. Yeah. He, yeah. He, he said in, in, in uh, Hitchcock Truffaut, he said, like, I, I think Stewart was just too old for like the romantic aspect of this. And yes, yeah, Stewart did want to come back for North by Northwest. Yeah. And he said no and went with Grant. Yeah. Yeah. Which granted, I think Grant works better in North by Northwest than Jimmy Stewart would, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But I don't think Cary Grant would work as well in Vertigo because I think thing about Grant, no matter how old he was, the man still had romantic charm. Yeah. No matter who he like, watch Charade. That's a big age gap between him and Hepburn. Don't care what in the slightest for them. Well, I may a little bit, uh, but like nowhere near as much as say Novak and Stewart. But here it's that creepiness in the age works is the thing. Yeah. And I think Hitchcock wanted to blame something in that, and. I, I think he misread it. It's not supposed to be a romance is the thing. It's supposed to be creepy and, and tragic for sure. Like I think there could be a romance, but I think the creepiness is amped up more because of them using Stuart's persona. And I guess that somewhat answered your question of what worked there is that Stuart's persona and how they use it and manipulate it in this is really great. And mm-hmm. Stuart gives a great performance in it. And in a weird way, it had it's hard to say this, but like, makes you think how underrated of an actor Stewart was mm-hmm. is the thing because of what he could do when given the opportunity. Uh, yeah. Is yeah. I mean, you, you and I have always kind of talked about how much more depth the, the Capra films have than they get credit for. But, yeah. um, and, and, you know, this time watching, rewatching it this past time, I, I was thinking about when, when he is dragging her up the stairs and like yelling yeah. at her, I was thinking about that scene. I know you and I both love in, in it's a wonderful life when he's yelling at Mary, you know, I don't, yeah. I don't want to stay in bed for falls. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, it, it is always interesting to see him kind of tap into that rage, but it's there and it, and it, and it really works. Um, yeah. And yeah. I think the age different works because, because it, it does have this weird, you know, when it's Judy, him and Judy, it does have this weird like sugar daddy like he's taking her out shopping and all this stuff and you're like yeah that happens that happens yeah, in, yeah. in real life i'm sure uh-huh. well, like and you can see an older because another thing is that an older man will go after a woman because that makes them feel young again mm-hmm. that's the whole thing like there's the scene when he's this kind of flirtation scene um when they are at the um when she comes to his place the day after she like left and she's leaving the note and they're kind of on his patio and there it's kind of this interesting like there's an interesting energy they're giving off with one another where like there's definitely interest here between them but they just don't know how to continue uh this basically yeah and then another thing we didn't talk about that i love is the sequoia tree stuff that we with earlier mm-hmm. on when they go because we talked about this a little bit in um uh in our patreon about la Jete. Uh, with Chris Marker, the director of that, how he uses Vertigo mm-hmm. as like a big kind of part of that. I short. was born here. Yeah, I died here. Yeah, and it's uh, that's a great sequence. But yeah, I, I think Stewart's great. Novak is also incredible in this because she, again, she's playing at the end of the day two specific Three roles. characters really because really and, Car- and Carlotta. Yeah, Madeline when she's possessed by Carlotta, and the whole time it's Judy playing all of that. Yeah, that and that's that's a that's a wild performance to do that with. And mm-hmm. you're not, and the thing is you're not really 
clued in until you're told directly is mm-hmm. is the thing of what's going on. Because, um, like, basically, if Judy's not an actress, she should be, is what I have to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, I, I, you, know, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I remember watching that with, with, with Room, with Brie Larson, and I remember, like, you know, because there's a scene where, like, she's doing a trick on the guy who's abducted her. And I go, you know what? If that girl's not an actress when she gets out of here, she should be. <laughs> Because that was a phenomenal performance. Uh, and that's how I feel about Judy here is that Judy's just so good at acting. You're like, God, she has a career in Hollywood if she wants that's it. That's true. Elster picked this girl up off the, the sidewalk and he was like, you know what? You can pull this off. You can yeah. do this. Yeah. Like, I mean, he Stewart should become her agent is the thing. <laughs> like, I wouldn't be going. She's a very rich. apt pupil. I'd be like, I can make money on this person. <laughs> very apt pupil he's like i know they need a new grace kelly down in hollywood let's go uh let's go do that um <laughs> no but uh hitchcock's direction is incredible herman's score is just uh, amazing i talked a little bit with um paul hirsch in the episode ba- uh, a few or a few months back because we talked about obsession from De palma and how obsession's score is very reminiscent of vertigo's score and it's just it's so just it's grand and and uh massive and just really romantic and lush it's just it's and it's incredible um the use of san francisco is amazing um yeah and and weirdly it sounds odd to say this but even with it being so sprawled out it's a fairly contained movie character wise mm-hmm. it's like you have midge and to a degree you have um the the husband uh like uh gavin like weirdly the world is more built out in rear window than vertigo mm-hmm. in terms of characters and that's a very unique thing to do to make it not feel small and feel very big but it's a very it's a very small movie at the end of the day yeah. it's a very it's very efficient in like what the core of the film is and it doesn't get bogged down with anything else like there's four characters that actually have a name in this movie Mm-hmm. and that's that's gavin midge judy slash madeline and scotty the rest are all just like one scene yeah it's and, and that's that's a that's a really surprising thing in this type of movie mm-hmm. um for you what's what's some other things that i didn't say that um yeah i mean you, you mentioned hitchcock's direction but i really just think him like swinging for the fences creatively and, yeah. and bringing you know obviously his team everybody is you know i think uh, if if I I think Rear Window might be Eva's head's peak in in his uh, repertoire just because she's doing all those Lisa costumes, but th- I, this is my favorite Herman score. I love the Psycho score, but I think this one is is a little bit more rich and kind of yeah well rounded. Um, and you know the Saul Bass is doing incredible stuff here, and um, and I, I and they're all kind of swinging for the fences and i think you know we've talked about when we've covered Otto Preminger we've talked about this idea of him kind of moving filmmaking along because he was making independent films and he was taking chances and he was innovating but he was making them kind of look like studio film he had like studio actors and so you kind of like trick the audience into thinking they were watching a studio film when they were really seeing this independent film that was really kind of breaking the rules yeah and i think hitchcock with this one is doing the opposite. He's making a studio film, but he's breaking all the rules within yeah. a studio film. And, and so I think between him and Preminger here at like the end of the fifties, they're really, the two of them are like really pushing out of the kind of how far can we era. go is yeah. the thing. How far can we go? 
Um, when talking about Edith, I think that, yeah, I agree. The the costume is great. I think also the production design is great. At the end of the mm-hmm. day, like again, I talk about the use of color. It's like the color, the like, look. Just watch the movie if you guys if you haven't watched it, and you're watching it again or whatever. Look at the green because the I, green. I, I have a trivia about green too. Oh, here, okay. We're so gonna talk I'll, about the green when okay. we get to trivia. Okay, right, cool. I'll, 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 I'll wait. I'll wait. some of my green rant later on okay. for that. All right, and that's still me. That's it for this for me. All right. Did anything not work? Okay. I know you probably have something. I just want to bring up this this specific scene. Mm-hmm. And possibly one of the most amateurish things in the Hitchcock movie mm-hmm. is the look to camera flashback and mm. then narr- then voiceover of her writing mm. a letter. It is, and I'm not saying it's bad. I just want to bring up the fact that, like this he shouldn't be doing this is the thing. Like I, I think he's kind of above a uh, different level. He doesn't have to do this, but like, mm. he's just kind of being, but also it's the, it's the power of the movie that he can literally just go, okay, um, I'm going to do something really dumb right now. So you guys can understand what's happening. And then we're going to forget it ever. Like kind of move on from it. Like it's a very, like, let's get this exhibition out quick and then move on. We're going to, we're going to talk about this scene in trivia too. So, um, <laughs> well, let's get I'm into just, it. Okay. Did you did you have anything not work? I don't. Not, I don't. I don't really. Uh, I, thought had, I thought you said he had a nitpick or something. He he had a nitpick. He, okay, his, gotcha. his, his nitpick was and and he very famously hated nitpicking. Hitchcock was like he hated yeah. people kind of picking the logic of his films apart because he was like it's just a movie, just like yeah, you're there for the story. Why bother picking it yeah. apart? But um, yeah. but he did when he was sitting down with Truffaut. One thing he said was he was like after he made it, he was like you know uh gavin was like very confident that like obviously he knew scotty wasn't going to make it up the stairs in time to stop madeline from going off the roof that's why he picked him because of his vertigo but yeah he was very confident that he wouldn't he'd made it that far and he wouldn't just stick his head up out of the trap door he was like all that work for that plot and then he was just like yeah he's not he's not gonna like just just look through the door for a minute because there was nowhere to hide up there like no you're just there yeah. yeah he did bring that up but okay, interesting um all right film facts in creating the spiral animation for the opening credits uh saul bass collaborated with john whitney to rig up a world war ii anti-aircraft targeting computer called the m5 gun director the, the machine required five operators and was 850 pounds because of this machine the opening credit sequence for vertigo is considered the first ever computer animated film sequence wow interesting that's crazy okay uh here's your green uh during the restoration of the recovered film negatives archivists robert harris and james katz found that many of the colors on the negatives had faded leaving them unsure of what the original colors for the film had been especially shades of green wow yeah. The the solution to this was they reached out to Ford Motor Company and identified a Ford model car scene in the film that had only come in one shade of green. Ford supplied them with a paint sample of that green, which they were then able to compare to the other shades of the faded colors in the film and find target uh, colors to to reference based off of that Ford paint color. Wow. So is that is that probably the car she drives, maybe or maybe just even mm-hmm. a different car? Yeah, uh, I don't know which one, but it was like one. It was very important. They were like, this is the only shade that this car came in. And then Ford yeah. had to like dig out their paint swatches and okay. be like, all right. 
against like green and red. It's like it, it it's red. Red appears a lot throughout this movie as well. It's interesting. There's a few things. Red appears throughout this movie a lot. Yellow does to an extent, but it almost weirdly represents a domestic life. Here's my theory on this because Midge, her place is almost all yellow. Hmm. Is yellow and blue. And and Midge also wears a lot of yellow. She has, she has like lemons on the counter. It's a very yellow like focused room. The only other time I think we see yellow is when Stuart and or when Scotty and Judy are walking around. I don't know the location, but one that like the uh, like old kind of like not temples, but like like columns and stuff in San Francisco. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's uh, a big monument. Yeah. yeah. As someone who I've never been to San Francisco, I don't know. It's until I'm married to Axe Murder. That's what I can tell you. Um, <laughs> Uh, but she's wearing a yellow blouse mm. and that's when they're both like falling into like kind of a legitimate, like romance is the thing. So I don't know how much, but like the yellow is only in there a little bit of time. It usually represents like stability is, is the thing with Midge or what could be is the thing. Um, which I found fascinating, but the green is the big one where it's like her, the hotel she goes to as Madeline green awning or a green sign kind of a greenish tint to the building uh judy's uh hotel besides the green neon her the awning on the place is green um it just pops up throughout and then you have kind of gavin who's more of a red stuff where his 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 office is like just a red carpet and red mm. chairs it's 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 big and that builds to the kind of introduction of 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 madeline in the in the restaurant where Pretty much everyone else's basic color is very neutral, and she's only with like kind of a really big pop of green against that red. So, anyway, that's yeah. my green. That's my green rant. Continued <laughs> from previously. <laughs> um, now to talk to something else you brought up. Yeah, there were two alternate cuts of this film, one that Hitchcock requested and one that he was forced to make. Uh, for the forced cut, uh, after reviewing the film, the Hayes Code administration told Hitchcock that he had to include an ending in which Elster was arrested for his crimes. Huh. Uh, Hitchcock reluctantly shot a scene of Scotty returning to Midge's apartment where she's listening to a radio broadcast that says police are tracking Elster across multiple oh, countries in man. Europe, but that they're sure to find him and arrest him soon. Uh, Scotty walks into the apartment silently. Midge pours him a whiskey, and together they stare out the window in silence. And that's the end of the movie. Oh, that's interesting. I don't, uh, it's it's not better, but that's yeah. still just an interesting like. Because if they don't if they don't speak, that's what's interesting to me is that they're just mm-hmm. like we're gonna accept the fact we're now just gonna be together, mm-hmm. even after all this shit just happened, huh? Uh, Hitchcock hated the ending uh, and he ended up agreeing to remove some smaller pieces of the film that the Hayes code had deemed too erotic in Mm. exchange for them letting him drop the ending. So that is the cut that we, that we see. Um, Although the ending is included on the most recent 4k release as an, as an alternate ending, although they credit it in the 4k release, they say that like the European, it was, it it was added to like European releases when it wasn't. I have to go find Uh, that. The other change, which was the one Hitchcock asked for, also has to do with something you were talking about. <laughs> uh, and it came from him getting a case of cold feet. In adapting the novel into a screenplay with Samuel Taylor, they had made the deliberate choice to reveal Judy's secret earlier in the film. Mm-hmm. In the novel, it is not revealed until Scotty 
realizes it. And like a kind of classic detective yeah. novel, he's like, here's here's what happened. I just put this all together. Yeah. Uh, this is how Hitchcock explains their logic in this change to Truffaut. He said, yeah. in the novel, after the death of the first woman at the tower, you literally start in on a new story. It picks up with the girl, and the main interest is his desire to recreate her in the image of the dead woman. Mm-hmm. And only at the very end comes the surprise. When the story restarted with the same girl, I put myself in the mind of a little child sitting on his mother's knee being told a story. When mother pauses in telling the story, the child always says, mummy, what comes next? Mm -hmm. Everyone was shocked when I said, I'm going to spill the whole story now, just as we've started the second story. They said, give the whole thing away now. I said, yes, because then the child will ask its mother once once it knows everything and Stuart doesn't, what comes next? Yeah, we're back on our old suspense surprise situation. This is something uh, Hitchcock says earlier in the interview where he says, uh, it's the bomb. Yes. He is more interested in putting a bomb under the table and showing the audience that the bomb is there. He said, you can get a jump scare from a bomb going off unexpectedly, but he likes to draw out that, you know, that the bomb is there and that it's ticking. Yeah. It creates tension because now you're wondering how is Judy going to react every time Scotty tries to make a change? Cause exactly. Cause now, cause now you're aware that like she, she is in on the fact that he is trying to make it more like the girl and not just a close like, Oh, why are you trying to make dress me like this? It's now like, yeah. Oh my God, he's trying to make me into this dead yeah. woman. When, this, when is he going to realize what? Yeah. Yes, so he said, yes. um, he said, now you have the same action. Nothing has changed, but you've given the audience the information. What yeah. will Stuart say when he finds out this is the same woman? Now this is your main thought. In addition, you have the added value of watching the woman resisting being changed back. Yeah. Before it was a girl who just didn't want to be changed over and that's all. Now you have a woman who realizes that this man is practically unmasking her. But that's mm-hmm. the plot side of it. The sex psychological side is that you have a man creating a sex image that he can't go to bed with until he has her back to the thing he wants to go to bed with Mm -hmm. or metaphorically indulging in a form of necrophilia. That's what it really was. Mm -hmm. So that that's a very bold, it's a bold move. And I think it also, it, it keeps you from going. I think if you were to watch this without that reveal, he would go like, why is she letting this random crazy guy off the street? do this you know yeah, when you're watching yeah. it you're like oh she's so she's still in love with him from when she was madeline um yeah. well, i said i don't think it's bad i think it's like he he's smartly like okay i'm gonna throw this all out there get it out of the way and then we're good <laughs> yeah and you don't but, have to ask any questions uh, but upon watching the first cut of the film he got nervous uh he was afraid that bucking the standard conventions of a mystery film would turn audiences off and he told his editor to cut out the reveal so everything would be revealed at the end Uh, Hitchcock's producer Herbert Coleman disagreed and their fallout over the cut got so severe that Jimmy Stewart had to serve as an intermediary between the two men. Wow. Uh, uh, Stewart said at one point he had to call Coleman and said like, you guys are two good friends. Like you can't let this move this. It's just a movie. You can't let it ruin your friendship. Mm -hmm. Uh, Paramount head Barney Balaban was on Coleman's side, however, and arranged test screenings of both cuts Reviews from the Coleman cut called it Hitchcock's best film, while reviews from the Hitchcock cut called it one of his worst. This was enough to convince Hitchcock, who returned it back to the reveal that was originally his idea. And by four years later, when he sat down with Truffaut, he didn't even mention his other cut. He was just fully mm-hmm. on board with the, um, yeah. with including the twist where he did. I mean, it it needs it. It's just it's just so different from him to do. Just like it's not the flashback reveal it's also the 
narrated letter writing mm-hmm. that you have right after. Um, yeah, it just feels so different for him. Yeah. Uh, I have one piece of trivia. If you, if you right. have, any, if you have yeah, anything let's get it. more, do you know who the manager of the hotel was? No. Her name is Ellen Corby. And she is the lady in It's Wonderful Life that asked for seventeen fifty or whatever. <laughs> and I saw, I go, that can't be her, because because <laughs> she's she's gray, but like her eyes are very similar. I look it up, and those are her top two movies on Letterboxd, or It's Wonderful Life and Vertigo. Like, oh, same lady. Oh, that's great. And so she gets to reunite uh, with uh, Stuart, but this time she is the one behind the counter, and mm-hmm. he's on the other side. All right. Well, let's give out some awards. Okay. So it's going to be tough. As you said, there's only four cast members, <laughs> yes. but uh, we've got our Beatrice Strait Award for the actor or actress with limited scenes that kills it. You might you might be giving it to her, huh? I might I might give it to Ellen Corby because I did I didn't notice her. Um, there's her and there's the shop owner that tells the, the bookstore owner that gives us Carlotta's story. Yeah, I wouldn't go with her. I, I, I would I would go with. Um, I'll go with Ellen Corby. Just just okay. respect respect for her. Mm-hmm. She has a nice one little scene. It's the it's it's this nice little scene when she's just like, no one went up there, and and uh, he's like, no, I saw like because I've been here the entire time. Like she's see, so no, nice. She didn't there's do no anything key. wrong. Did yeah, she? she did. Yeah, I think she's I think she's great. Just a little thing for her. Um, because I would say like San Francisco, <laughs> but I, I had some more. It's in more is the thing. All right. Uh, the Annie Potts X Factor Award for supporting actor or actress that's the most memorable. And this is Barbara Bell Giddies. Yes. As, as Midge, like just yes. hands down, she's 100%. great. As, she's great as Midge. I love the scene, little scene. It's it's such a weird scene when she drives up to Scotty's place and and Madeline's leaving, and she's like, "Oh, like did you have a good time, Scotty, mm-hmm. or whatever? Like, was it a ghost? Was it Johnny real? O? She calls Johnny him Johnny O. o. Johnny O. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, she's great. And again, they have these weird things where like. The way Hitchcock shoots her mouth, she could be a serial killer if she wanted to be, <laughs> is the thing. But she has a warmth to her, is the thing in moments. And it's like the the whole like, scene when she draws herself as the as the as the painting, and it's the way Hitchcock frames it, where she's seeing the exact same pose, like on her like like a her like bench or whatever, and mm-hmm. he's just like. No, that's not funny, Mitch. That's yeah. not funny. Um, uh, I don't think I want to see that movie anymore. Uh, no, uh, no. I, uh, <laughs> it's like, why are we going to a movie? What are we talking about? Get dinner? What? What are you talking mm-hmm. about? I'm sorry for the Stuart impersonation, everyone. Um, no, but she, I think she's great as Mitch. And, and it, you wish you had a little more payoff with her later. But again, it's like, I think, because it's her last scene, or it's the hospital scene, right? Yeah. Where he's, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's her, that's her last scene. But no, I think she's great. I think she's great in this. All right. Uh Gene Hackman MVP award, the person that carries this movie. Okay. It is Hitchcock. But I want to shout out Stewart and Novak again here. Yeah. For Cause, sure. Because uh, here here's the question. Take out Hitchcock for a second. Novak or Stewart? Or is it both? I think it's, it's a, both. I think it's I think it's it's, a, a, it's it's a very tough call because it is I think a, it they're is both a, really good for very specific reasons. Yes, and it is an extremely difficult performance for a young actor. Yes. So so you got to give that to Novak, and it is also an extremely difficult performance for a Hollywood contract star with a persona yeah. to play completely against persona. Um, yeah. 
so yeah, I think it's I think it is it is huge performances from each of them. Um, yeah, because she is like twenty four in this movie. Yeah. Um, because I think yeah thirty three. So she's yeah she's twenty because they shoot in September tw- uh, ninety seven. So she's twenty four, and she plays also a much she feels much older is the thing. But also, it's this great again. That's just you get the Judy character, you get the Madeline Carlotta. I, one of my favorite performances of her is 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 her as Judy when she's fully in the Madeline, uh, like, uh, image basically, and she's getting ready to go to the dinner. And uh-huh. there's something like so warm about her in yeah. that moment. This like pure happiness that we haven't really seen anytime throughout the movie and it's so unique and different to see it when she's in the madeline image because madeline was never that warm and happy mm-hmm. and it's still the same person playing <laughs> it's the thing yeah. um and it's just so good and then stewart because the persona of of how he said how he's riffing on it it's it's taking your your uh your grandfather your dad who's supposed to be this nice nice kind of older man and making him a creep is the mm-hmm. thing. Um, and Stuart doesn't shy away from it is the thing. And knowing his background, you're surprised he didn't shy away from it is the thing. Um, mm. So yeah, they're both great, but just by the pure overall stamp of the movie, it's Hitchcock. Yeah. And the author of it all. But yeah, I yeah. think, I think this is, yeah, for this is for sure. The one when you really get into like him as an author and like what themes does he put into his movies and, and watching all of them together and seeing his his worldview come through these movies. And then you watch this one and you're like, this this is him. Like, this Again, is his movie yeah. about himself. Yeah, his sick and twisted worldview of himself, who where yeah. he's self-aware that he is a creep is, is, is yeah. kind of the thing. Um, or hopefully he's self-aware. Maybe he's not. Maybe he's just like completely apart, a like a set apart from it. But it is very <laughs> much his view or people's viewpoint of him at this time. Yeah. So, yeah, but Hitchcock. Final questions. Uh, modern remake, aside, our Cinenation modern remake, not the Robert Downey Jr. modern remake that is currently in the works. Yeah, I saw uh, that. Stephen Knight and we'll see. Was, we'll see. I like I like something Stephen Knight's done. I'm very very hit or miss with Stephen Knight. So um, for a while, it was a lot of hits, and then there's been a little too many misses of late. But yes, I I understand. Like Locke, love Locke. That he did with Tom Hardy. Yeah, I think it's great. I'm a huge taboo guy. I was just talking yeah. about taboo this weekend. I love taboo. Yeah. I yeah, I have a few friends like that swear taboo is like one of the like most underrated shows like of that like that year or whatever. Mm-hmm. That period. All right. Who you got for us? I mean, Downey is a good pick, I will say. I think Downey's a great pick. Yeah. Just based off the the kind of connection people give to them, I think you have to throw Hanks out there and like name in the hat. Mm. I think I would also throw Clooney's name into that hat is the thing. Ooh. Okay. I think those are all interesting people, interesting choices. Hanks, I'd just be fascinated to see him play a role like that. But mm. Clooney, Clooney might make the most sense, is the thing. Or is Downey the right person for the job? I think it might. I'm 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 open to Downey. Post Oppenheimer. I'm, 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 That's I true. That's true. Um, I'm ready for the Downey Renaissance, and and it's definitely playing against Persona. Uh, agree, anything anything he does at this point that's not Marvel is playing against Persona. So that's true. So we we want to stick with Downey. We're going to actually stick with what's going on in the world right sure. now. 
Let's Clooney, do that. But Clooney is a, I think Clooney and Hanks are two interesting ones with two very different like performances you would get is the thing. Um, now for, for Madeline Judy. So she needs to be, I would say mid thirties yeah. at, at least is the thing. Cause you still want that age gap to some extent. Maybe it is a college friend. It's like a young ma- woman he's married to, mm-hmm. um, is the thing. Now, who do we go with, with this? I'm gonna toss her out here. Elizabeth Olsen's the name I would put into this, hmm. into this race. Ooh, ooh. Elizabeth Debicki. Oh yeah. Thoughts? I love Elizabeth Debicki. Big fan. But she's also play. She plays older, very mm-hmm. well. Is the thing. Like she, it's wild that. Yeah, she was a good deal younger when she got Gatsby. She, she was, was like, like 23 when she took yeah. Gatsby. That's she wild. Was a good deal younger than everybody else in that cast. Um, oh, Carrie Mulligan's not that much older. Carrie Mulligan's not. But I, I think Debicki might be a good one. Mulligan would be interesting too, though. Mulligan, mm-hmm. that's an interesting shift for her. Uh, like like the character shift in in the movie, mm-hmm. um, I'm gonna say the Becky actually for me. Okay, just to go a little bit different with our choices there, because mm-hmm. I don't, we've never cast her in anything. Is there anyone want to go with for 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 Gavin or 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 is there a Midge? Who should be a Midge? <laughs> I think we should make Midge closer in age to Kate uh, Winslet. Kate Winslet. Kate Winslet okay. should be Midge. I would go. All Kate right. Winslet should be Midge because I love Kate Winslet and Kate Winslet and Downey. Elizabeth Debicki, um, or okay, hold on, hold on. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna twist it up. What if, um, to go to go with this, how they're always casting stuff together. What if as Ga is it Gavin? What's that's the guy? What's the uh, yeah Gavin? What if Gavin's Ewan McGregor, and Madeline's Mary Elizabeth Winstead? Um, oh, I got all right. I'm gonna throw one more at you that okay. just <laughs> into my head. Vanessa Kirby. Vanessa Kirby. Oh, damn. She's probably the best one. She I was just she, thinking about, I was thinking about her playing Haley Atwell playing her in mission impossible. And I was like, that's Judy right there. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. No, it's the, the, I have a similar look to it. Okay. So we're going to go. Okay. We'll go with Vanessa Kirby. We haven't cast her anything to my knowledge. Sorry, Elizabeth, the Becky. I do love you here. Uh, your, your second call, I guess. Um, okay. So Vanessa Kirby, Downey. Um wait, Kate Winslet. <laughs> Tom Cruise. Oh man, that'd be so different for him, man. <laughs> it would be so different for him. Do we want to do it? Do we want to pull that trigger? We we really don't we, we very rarely put Tom Cruise in anything. Screw I'm it. just let's, saying. Let's go Cruise, because I could see him being like I'm now picturing him in the scene when he's picking out the clothes. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. The thing is, these are the first, this is the best shoes. <laughs> it can't matter that much to you. It can't matter this much to you. Oh, yeah. I could see him like, it doesn't matter to you. It's just your hair color. <laughs> I think that would be the most like to be like, uh, like almost had to uh, not say he's alien like in his performance, but like to be kind of like an inhumane uh, character if that that's makes the, sense that's like the full circle of of christian bale saying that he based uh patrick bateman off of tom cruise yes, for then for, tom cruise I, to I play agree. scotty yeah i would agree with that okay so okay we went all over the map here so we got <laughs> we got tom we got tom cruise as scotty vanessa kirby as um as judy slash madeline we have kate winslet as um a, as midge did we say who we wanted for i said uh, ian mcgregor is there another one we should 
I mean, I'm on the Bruce Greenwood train right now. So let's do know. Bruce Greenwood. Let's do, <laughs> I, he's, he he would actually that's, that's kind of a role he he's, he could play in his sleep. All right. Okay. I'm 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 safe with that pick. Those picks. All right. <laughs> we went. Well, that was maybe one of our longer debates. Is the thing. All right. Um. So does this fit in any other genres? I mean, um, necrophilia movies. You know, that's a. <laughs> Second chance romance movies. Um, yeah, dark, dark romance. Um, tragic romance. I would put it in a tragic romance. Would it be gothic? Would you say gothic romance? I don't know if I'd say gothic romance yeah. exactly. It's 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 borderline. Tragic romance is one. Um, it's not fully a ghost story, is the thing. But it, yeah, it's it, one it, of those it, Hitchcock Hitchcock it, ghost it, stories. It it, it, th- it makes you think it is. Um. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I ha- really have anything else, because then we'll go into kind of investigative. Yeah, uh, I, I think it is tragic romance for sure. Um, but that can all. That's also kind of a part of some of the the investigative yeah, and noir a, and movies obs- and, and obsession movie. I guess you could say. Yeah, obsession movie. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So how does this fit in with private investigator noir films? Well, again, kind of not the same as we talked about with Thin Man last week. But you have the idea of which we'll see kind of throughout some of these movies we talk about this month is the idea of a case, a case that you take becoming intertwined with your personal life and how mm. you kind of can't separate the two is the thing. It's a case that becomes personal. Um, and that goes against kind of what those early detective investigative movies did. Um, and so in some cases, it becomes an obsession. I think we'll talk about that with Chinatown uh, later in the month. I think we'll talk about this a little bit. Uh, on our Patreon coming up with some of the movies we're, we're discussing. Um, that's a key part of where the pivot of with things like Maltese Falcon and those movies happen. We pivot to kind of that of the obsession over the case. Um, uh, there's also kind of the running theme of like usually detective investigator, because even though like Scotty's not exactly a official investigator is like, he doesn't have a, a, a thing like Marlowe or Spade, mm-hmm. but he's using his skills as a, as a previous cop, as a detective. That's something you'll see a lot of times is that you'll see kind of a, a private investigator who left the force because it was corrupt or something they didn't like about it. And they want to have more control over what jobs they do is the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't really have not we don't really have a um, relationship with police in this one like they do in Thin Man. Like I think you'll, you'll see in Chinatown a little bit. Um, but I guess the relationship is that that Scotty used to be a cop, basically. Mm-hmm. Um and in some cases, in some movies with the tech detective stuff, you will have people who tackle a case that it's they're haunted by a previous thing that yeah. comes a part of the case. That makes sense. Like mm-hmm. it's like it's like an example TV show Broadchurch with David Tennant. It's like a story happens where it's like, oh, my God, a case happens where it's like this is just what happened of like what broke me the last time. Mm-hmm. And it's always like the case that broke you previously, it comes back to haunt you again is the thing. So it's like with this, it's like a guy dies because because of his uh, vertigo and then a woman dies. It's like the case, it's a repeating thing that happens uh, in the kind of investigative genre is that like the case you're taking is your greatest fear because it results in someone's death previously is the thing. Um, blowout, not, not an investigative movie, but it kind of deals with a similar thing is that like you have the kind of fatal flaw sometimes that you kind of, fall back on that comes back and haunts you later on um yeah do you have any feelings on that 
of how it's um, in the genre? No, I mean, I think there's a the thing I kind of mentioned at the top of the episode that becomes kind of the trope of of that the person who hired you is is somehow the the, the yeah. culprit. Um, but yeah, other than that, I think I think we covered it. Yeah, yeah, and the tragic the tailing, kinda, the good good tailing scene. You always got to have a good tailing scene good, in, a, in a PI movie. Good tailing scene, and also kind of the exposition dumps of like the of someone coming in, like the guy at the library, being like, "Well, this is mm-hmm. what this is," or whatever. Yeah. Um. But yeah. Well, that's it on Vertigo, Thomas. That's now our third. There we Hitch- go. That's our third Hitchcock movie after Rear Window and Psycho. I, I, I sat down to write the, the script for this one. I was like, I feel like I always pick like the obscure like cult movies, and now I'm having to write this script for like one of the <laughs> best movies of all time. So no pressure here. We no go. pressure whatsoever. Um. So if you haven't seen Vertigo, I'm sorry we spoiled a lot for you, but you should go see it. If you haven't watched it in a while, go check it out again. Um. For our Patreon coming up soon, we're doing another double feature. Uh, Thomas and I were doing Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid and The Kid Detective starring Adam Bray. Two very different kind of movies in this genre. Both have comedy elements. Kid Detective is way more of a drama than Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Mm-hmm. Um, but bo- both kind of playing off of the tropes of a detective of what, movie. Of what we assume an investigator, investigate a private investigator detective is. Mm-hmm. This thing. But, but I think with with Deadman Don't Wear Plaid, it's a parody of, of film detective. And then with like uh the kid detective, it's more a parody of like the you're like Nancy Drew like Encyclopedia uh, Brown. Encyclopedia Brown, like child detective movies, but now they're all grown up. Kid Detective, yeah. uh, you have you seen Kid Detective? I can't no, remember. I haven't. I was okay. one that like I it was weird. I told you guys about it and then you all watched it and I never ended up watching it. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's one yeah, so Patreon, if you guys it's a great movie. I really loved it. So I'm excited to hear your thoughts and kind of discuss it. Um, but that's on the Patreon. So join join our Patreon if you can for that. Um, next episode, David will be on. So we're gonna discuss inherent vice. It's a it's technically a five week month. We're we're taking a week off for Thanksgiving, so just be aware of that. So we will not have a new episode on Thanksgiving. But next week is inherent vice, and then we're finally finishing off with trying to tell the end of the month. Uh, but yeah, that's it on Vertigo. Uh, if you have any questions for us, feel free to contact us at podcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions, comments. And if you're new to the show or, or a fan of the show, and for some reason you haven't subscribed to us, be sure to subscribe to the show so you can stay up to all our new episodes. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, be sure to write us your preferred podcast platform. Please, please write us a review. It can't, it can't matter that much to you. <laughs> What, what what do five stars mean to you? They mean the world to me. They mean the world to me. So yeah, five stars if you can. That your reviews can help spread the word about us, gain us more exposure, and people can find us and hopefully enjoy the show and listen to all episodes and all that good stuff. Um, and finally, don't forget to line follow us on Facebook, X, formerly known as Twitter, Instagram, Letterbox, and TikTok. Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. We hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye. <laughs>